0: Karina Holmer scratched the final panel on the lottery ticket and was surprised to discover that she'd won 10,000 Swedish krona. The win couldn't have come at a better time. It was only one week until 19-year-old Karina was set to leave her small Swedish village in Schillingarud to travel to the USA. Her unexpected but welcome windfall, which in 1996 was the equivalent of roughly 1,500 US dollars, granted Karina extra spending money for her overseas adventure. Karina wasn't going to the United States just for a holiday. She had signed up to be an au pair with a company in Sweden that matched young women with American families looking for nannies. Karina would provide childcare and light housekeeping duties to her host family, and in return they would give her board and a small allowance. One of Karina's three sisters previously worked as an au pair and had encouraged her to do the same as a way to experience living overseas. The arrangement would also help Karina save money, which she could put towards pursuing her ultimate career goal of becoming a restaurant manager. Driven and passionate, Karina had already completed trade school in the hospitality industry. The company matched Karina with a family in the affluent town of Dover, around 15 miles southwest of downtown Boston, Massachusetts. She was looking forward to exploring Boston as she'd never experienced life in a bustling city before. In March 1996, Karina prepared to leave her small village of fewer than 100 people for Dover, which had a population of around 4,000. Although outgoing and social, Karina was quite dependent on her friends and family. By working in America, she hoped to show her parents that she could stand on her own two feet. Karina was happy and excited as she farewelled her family at the airport. Just before she boarded the plane, she said, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Upon arriving in Dover, Karina settled in well with her host family. 43-year-old Frank Rapp worked as a photographer. His wife, Susan Nikter, was an artist who painted for a living. The couple had two children, a six-year-old boy and a toddler-aged daughter. Frank and Susan weren't strangers to hosting an au pair. Karina was the sixth Swedish nanny to stay with them. Described by neighbours as a well-to-do couple, Frank and Susan's three-storey, landscaped home offered Karina ample space and privacy when needed. Naturally athletic as a Pony Club member and one-time Girl Scout, Karina spent her days playing games such as soccer and basketball with the children. Her time was also spent completing household chores, The two children quickly grew fond of Karina, who was gentle, patient, affectionate, and optimistic. In the evenings, she often joined other au pairs at nightclubs and cafes in the Boston area. She formed close friendships with her colleagues and the young women bonded over their shared experiences in a foreign country. As Karina only worked weekdays, Frank Rapp made her an offer It was one he had made to all the nannies who had looked after his children in the past. On weekends, Karina could crash at his loft apartment in South Boston, which he used as a photography studio. This would allow her to enjoy Boston on her days off without having to worry about making her way back to Dover each night. Karina eagerly accepted and spent the majority of her weekends in the city with her au pair friends. One of the most exciting dates on the Swedish calendar is midsummer, celebrated at the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. On Friday June 21 1996, when Karina Holmer was three months into her American adventure, she decided that being on the other side of the world gave her no less reason to celebrate. Karina told her host family that she planned to go to Boston for the weekend and would be back on Sunday evening. She pulled on a grey and silver sweater, shiny grey pants, and black ankle boots before leaving for the city on Friday afternoon with another female nanny. The two made their way to Boylston Place in downtown Boston. The area, brimming with nightclubs, was known to all pairs and locals alike as a popular place for international tourists. Karina and her friend chose to visit two nightclubs, Zanzibar and Mercury Bar, as many from their social circle would be there. At 5 foot 3 inches tall and with a face described as sweet and innocent, Karina Holmer looked more like a 16-year-old than her nearly 20 years. This, coupled with the fact that the legal drinking age in the US was 21, meant she had to use a fake ID to get into the clubs. It worked, as it had many times before. Karina and her group of approximately a dozen friends spent the night drinking and dancing, At two the following morning, they spilled out onto the street as Zanzibar closed its doors. Karina, who was heavily intoxicated, began talking and dancing with passers-by, including a nearby panhandler. She also stopped to chat to a man walking a large white dog, both of whom were dressed in matching Superman t-shirts. Half an hour after leaving Zanzibar, Karina was still outside the club, having a conversation with two men. Her friend, who was sitting in a nearby car, asked her boyfriend to tell Karina they were leaving. As the boyfriend spoke with Karina, the two men she was with began swearing at him, asking, who do you think you are? When Karina heard her friends were leaving, she opted to stay behind replying that she would see them later. On Sunday June 23, the day Karina was expected to return to Dover, her employer, Frank Rapp, received a phone call. It was from Karina's friend, who had accompanied her to Boston that weekend. She was wondering if Karina had preemptively returned to Dover as no one in the city knew where she was. Concerned, Frank drove to his loft. Upon entering, he saw some of Karina's belongings lying around, but the 19-year-old wasn't there. As no one could pinpoint where Karina might have wound up after the clubs closed in the early hours of Saturday morning, Frank phoned the Boston Police to report her missing. Hours later, a homeless man made his way along Boylston Street. He passed the closed Zanzibar nightclub before turning down Ipswich Street at the end. Although connected to various main thoroughfares, the street itself was relatively quiet. It ran parallel with a train track and was overlooked by several apartment blocks. On the other side of the railway was the Massachusetts Turnpike, And above was the Charles Gate overpass. As the homeless man walked along Ipswich Street, he checked dumpsters for recyclable cans that he could trade for cash. At around 1.30pm, he was examining a dumpster behind an apartment building and noticed a plastic garbage bag within. Inside, he came across another plastic bag. He untied this second bag, and saw something horrifying. It was a woman's arm, her fingernails painted with nail polish. Terrified, the man fled to notify the authorities. When police arrived at the scene, they discovered that the bag contained the upper half of a woman. Her lower body and legs were missing. It was Karina Holmer. Faint ligature marks on Karina's neck indicated she had been strangled with a piece of rope or cord. Following her murder, Karina was severed in two, likely by a power saw. Her makeup had been removed and her body was completely washed clean. It was believed that her remains were dumped on the Saturday, some time after Karina had separated from her friends. Her exact time of death was difficult to ascertain as there were no markings on her body caused by blood settling. This suggested she had either been held captive prior to her murder or that she had lost too much blood during the act. The brutal way in which Karina had been mutilated by her killer or killers made her murder particularly unusual. The Boston police, who were no strangers to homicides, were left shocked by Karina's treatment and vowed to catch those responsible. They speculated that her assailant had sawed her in half because it made her remains easier to transport. Or perhaps it was done to cover up evidence of a sexual assault on the lower portion of her body. Forensic psychologists believed the seemingly opportunistic crime was carried out by a first-time killer. Despite the killer's inexperience, they were described as careful, cunning and clever. They did not panic in the wake of the crime. And were in no rush to determine how and where to dispose of Karina's body. Alan Fox, Dean of the College of Criminal Justice at Northwestern University, said, We're not talking about a bizarre maniac. Either it's someone who had some relationship with Karina, or we're talking about a stranger who has a great deal of control over his behaviour, who could very well have a good job and neighbours and friends, but for whom rape and murder is done for pleasure. Lieutenant Robert O'Toole, who was assigned to the case, confirmed in the Boston Globe that initial investigations would focus on Karina's movements from the last time her friends reported seeing her. CCTV footage from inside and outside Zanzibar nightclub was taken for analysis. While the Boston Police Department had confirmed early on that the body was that of Karina Holmer, when they went to check her name through all the various agencies that hired international ore pairs, they received a surprise. Her name wasn't on any of them. Over in Sweden, Karina's parents returned from a night out to discover multiple messages on their home phone's answering machine. They were from the Boston police, advising them of their daughter's murder. A media frenzy followed the discovery of Karina's body, and the story dominated headlines in Massachusetts and Sweden. Boston's mayor implored reporters to let investigators do their job without getting in the way. Karina's parents were repeatedly asked for interviews but were too distraught to speak with the press. Her sister, Johanna, provided a comment to the Boston Globe, stating, Of course we know that such things can happen over there, but it's nothing that you expect. Karina's friends told the press she had been sensible but also very trusting of others and not particularly streetwise. A Swedish salon owner who lived and worked in Boston attributed this to a difference in cultures, telling the Boston Globe, quote, This is not Sweden and the young girls don't realise that. There is much more violence around here and you have to be careful, especially when you go drinking, Sweden is not like this. Everything there is on a smaller scale. You are more protected. All pair agencies offered counselling to nannies in the area as many struggled to come to terms with the death of one of their friends. A police spokesperson tried to calm the public and reassured them it was still safe to go out, stating... There is not a mad killer running through Boston scooping up young women from clubs. Still, local night spots saw a decrease in business, with many people reporting that they were choosing to stay home instead. One woman around the same age as Karina said, I know people that won't even go out now, but if you do, it's worth it to take a cab. $5 Five dollars can save your life. Law enforcement officials painted Karina Holmer as a party animal who was known to go out clubbing often. One source said it was difficult to track where she had gone and with whom because she socialised with, quote, a loose running crowd, the party animals of party animals. Karina's host mother, Susan Nicta, denied these allegations, telling the media that Karina had only been drinking a lot on the night she went missing because she was celebrating midsummer, adding that this was probably why she got into trouble. She described Karina as typically having very good judgement. Meanwhile, Detectives discovered that Karina had gained employment in the United States through a Stockholm au pair agency run by 46-year-old Tage Sundin. After learning of Karina's death, Sundin told Swedish newspaper Expressen that although his agency found work for au pairs, he did not provide them with the special 13-month visa they required to work in the US. This was why Karina's name was not recorded in any official documentation. Tage Sundan, who had previously been charged twice with illegal employment practices, admitted that au pairs, including Karina Homer, were technically illegal immigrants. Although most official agencies checked in with their overseas au pairs to see how they were going, He hadn't heard from Karina since she left Sweden. He was devastated by Karina's murder and publicly claimed responsibility for her death, closing down his business soon after. While Boston police said that finding out more about Karina would help them track down her killer, a spokesperson was quick to point out that investigators were no closer to finding them. A criminologist discussed Karina's case with the Boston Globe, saying, "...these kinds of events are incredibly rare. The mutilation of a body is not common in homicide. When it does happen, it gets a lot of attention and we tend to think it's more common than it is." Although Karina had only been in the US for approximately three months, investigators worked with the theory that she knew her killer. As it turned out, there were multiple people of interest. Karina's employer, Frank Rapp, caught the attention of detectives early in the investigation. As one of the individuals closest to Karina, the 43-year-old had to be questioned. Investigators first spoke to Frank the day after Karina's body was identified. He gave an alibi for the night in question, telling detectives that after Karina left with her friend to celebrate midsummer, he went with Susan and his children to McDonald's and a drive-in movie theatre. After that, they all returned to their home in Dover, Where Frank stayed for the remainder of the weekend. His wife Susan confirmed this, as did her parents, who had been staying with them at the time. A background check showed that Frank Rapp had previously run into trouble with the law. Five years earlier, in 1991, he was arrested for physically assaulting Susan. As reported in the Boston Globe, Frank appeared in court on charges of assault and battery. Susan filed a restraining order against him, but later asked that it be removed and all charges against Frank be dropped after he agreed to treatment for alcoholism. Although Susan Nectar refused to elaborate on the incident when interviewed by the media, she did say that the arrest turned out to be a very positive thing for both of them, later adding What happened with Frank and I in the past is not going to do anything to help find this person who killed Karina. I have a very solid, loving relationship with my husband. Susan told the Boston Globe that Karina was the perfect playmate and caregiver for her children, stating, She was a really lovely girl. She was the sweetest, kindest person who wouldn't hurt a fly she was so responsible and sensible." Frank added that their thoughts and prayers were with Karina's family. The evening after Frank's first police interview, homicide detectives and cadaver dogs descended on his downtown loft. After a six-hour search, they left with six bags of evidence, including a bag full of Karina's clothing, and what was described in the media as, soft pornography. Detectives hoped that an examination of the apartment might reveal whether Karina made it back there after her night out at Zanzibar. However, this was unable to be determined. There were no signs that anything untoward occurred in the loft, with cadaver dogs failing to pick up anything of forensic importance. That same night, approximately 30 hours after Karina's body was found, a fire broke out in a dumpster approximately 200 feet from Frank and Susan's Dover home. The blazer's proximity to the Rapp household did not go unnoticed by police, who requested a second interview with Frank the next day. This time, he attended homicide headquarters with his lawyer, Once the interrogation was over, Frank told the Boston Globe that he had been ruled out of the investigation, stating, I am definitely not a suspect. I answered questions and cooperated with authorities because we want to get this case solved. My family is completely devastated. Lieutenant Robert O'Toole disputed this assertion in a news conference explaining that while investigators had interviewed a number of people, they hadn't ruled anyone in or out. Later that afternoon, Boston police searched through the dumpster that was set on fire near Frank and Susan's home. Amongst the ash were the burnt remnants of some women's clothing. No human remains were found. Police carried away three bags of evidence and the dumpster was transported to the Dover Highway Department under police guard. Later reports confirms that the clothing did not match Karina Holmer's. But investigators soon made a notable discovery. On Saturday June 22, the day that detectives suspected Karina was murdered, Frank Rapp had obtained a permit to dump trash at a Dover recycling facility. On Thursday, June 27, detectives headed to the facility. They spent five hours sifting through refuse and carted away two dumpster loads in an attempt to find evidence linking Frank to Karina's murder. Susan Nickter said in an interview with the Boston Globe that, like the dumpster fire, The permit was nothing more than, quote, a weird coincidence. She explained that Frank had gone to the facility to recycle newspapers and had taken their son and their nephew with him. Then she added, Frank has an airtight alibi. Anyone who knows Frank knows he does not have it in him to hurt somebody else but law enforcement officials maintained that the apparent coincidence was, quote, definitely suspicious. While Frank Rapp and Susan Nicta described Karina as happy and carefree, others had a different impression of the 19-year-old's short time in the US. One of Karina's friends in Sweden contacted police about some correspondence she had received from Karina. In one letter, Karina said she was homesick and wanted to return in August, which would mean cutting her trip short. Karina also confided in another friend named Ulrika Svensson. A letter to Ulrika read… There is always so much cleaning and I think I am stressed all the time, so this is not exactly what I thought it would be. Just weeks before Karina's murder, Ulrika received another letter. This one was more ominous. Quote, Something terrible has happened. I cannot tell you right now what it is, but I will tell you when I get home. None of Karina's friends or family had any idea what terrible thing she was referring to. On Sunday June 30, a week after Karina's body was found, 50 of her friends and other or pairs gathered in Boston's public gardens across the road from Zanzibar nightclub for an impromptu memorial service. Detectives observed them from afar, videotaping the service in the hopes that a person of interest might show up. After holding hands and praying for Karina, the group made their way to a chain link fence near the dumpster where Karina was found and decorated it with brightly coloured roses. Afterwards, detectives questioned some attendees and were able to further account for Karina's final movements. During the night, Karina was seen dancing and talking with two men in Zanzibar. Witnesses described the men as well-dressed. It was unclear whether they were the same men Karina was seen talking to on the street after the club closed, but one of her friends thought they might be. Despite appeals for them to come forward, these men were not identified. The more witnesses investigators interviewed, the more varying accounts they received regarding Karina's last known whereabouts. It was difficult to know how seriously to take some statements, as almost all witnesses who had last seen Karina alive were inebriated at the time. One person came forward to say he had seen Karina sitting in a grey Mitsubishi with two men. He stuck his head in the car and said to Karina, let's go, you can come with us. In response, one of the men threatened him to get away from the car or his head would be crushed. Another witness said there had been four men in the car. It wasn't determined who these men were. Others, who said they had seen Karina in an alleyway, had actually confused her with another blonde woman. A friend of Karina's told authorities she saw her leaving Zanzibar with an older man and that they were supposedly going to an after-hours party. Investigators knew that Karina had been spotted chatting to a man wearing a Superman t-shirt and walking a large dog. CCTV footage revealed the man to be tall with a muscular build, while witnesses described him as quiet and shy. Karina had patted his dog and was overheard telling the man that her friends had left the bar without her. In response, he allegedly offered her a lift home. While investigators believed that Karina never went back to the loft apartment where she was staying, they were unsure whether or not she'd accepted a ride with the man. The dog walker called the Boston Police Department and identified himself as 48-year-old Herb Witten. Herb, who was six foot two and 240 pounds, owned a three-foot-tall, 120-pound Great Pyrenees dog named Pier. He didn't live in the neighborhood. Instead. He had driven 30 minutes from his home in Andover just to walk pier through Boston's downtown streets in the early hours of the morning. This struck investigators as suspicious. Locals who frequented the area claimed that Herb was in the habit of doing this as an excuse to speak to women who were leaving nightclubs. When Herb was asked to come down to homicide headquarters for questioning, his lawyer sent a letter asserting that he was not to be interviewed. Given there was no evidence against him, Herb could not be compelled to attend. Detectives also tracked down a 31-year-old panhandler named Juan Polo, who was seen dancing with Karina Homer outside of Zanzibar nightclub. Like Frank Rapp, Polo also had previous run-ins with the law. In April 1995, more than a year before Karina's murder, a woman named Evelyn Alvarez was found strangled to death by a dumpster behind a bowling alley. She was Juan Polo's ex-girlfriend. Polo had been questioned by police in July 1995 after they made the link between him and Evelyn, but he had a strong alibi for the night of his former girlfriend's murder. The murder of Evelyn Alvarez remained unsolved, but Plymouth District Attorney Michael Sullivan didn't think her case was related to Karina Holmes. Unlike Karina, Evelyn had not been disfigured and there was no evidence she'd been sexually assaulted. Nevertheless, In a rap sheet that dated back to 1985, Juan Polo had a total of 42 records, including a rape charge that was later dismissed. He adamantly denied being involved in Karina's murder, telling the Boston Herald that while they were dancing, he had begged Karina to return to the safety of her friends. With no evidence linking him to the killing, Polo was free to go. One more person raised suspicions when investigators canvassed the area, talking to those who lived in the apartment buildings near where Karina's body was discovered. As reported in the Boston Globe, a man named John lived two blocks from the scene. He was the lead singer in a local band which often included S&M and bondage routines in their performances. Like Juan Polo, John had some previous run-ins with the law and was also known to collect animal and human bones. But he denied being involved in any way and investigators could find nothing to tie him to the case. On July 1 1996, forensic experts successfully lifted a partial fingerprint from the plastic bag Karina's upper body was dumped in. Finally, it seemed investigators had the breakthrough they'd been waiting for. When they tried to enhance the print, however, they were disappointed to discover that it contained less than the necessary number of identifying characteristics to make a successful match. Without the crime scene where Karina's murder took place, investigators' efforts were significantly hampered. And they were still missing the lower portion of Karina's body, which may have contained crucial evidence. By the start of July, just a week after Karina's murder, detectives already conceded that they might never find the rest of her remains. One law enforcement officer reported, "'We haven't given up, but the longer it goes on, the more difficult it becomes.'" Karina Holmer's upper body was returned to Sweden, and on July 5 a funeral was held in her hometown at Åker's church. Her family requested that attendees wear colourful clothes in celebration of Karina's life, and as the mourners gathered, their bright garments cast a vibrant scene against the white stone building. Karina's family decorated the church with wildflowers they'd picked from an adjacent forest and her coffin was adorned with white roses. The officiating reverend said it was one of the hardest ceremonies he had to lead and described the hundred mourners who attended as haunted by feelings of devastation, anger, frustration and powerlessness. Karina was laid to rest in the nearby cemetery. Back in Boston, leads in the case quickly ran dry. Yet, on August 23, two months after Karina's murder, the Boston Police Commissioner told the public that the case was still very actively being investigated. When detectives failed to find any tangible evidence linking Karina's employer, Frank Rapp, to her murder, he was officially ruled out as a suspect. Local media ignored this development and continued to describe Frank as a person of interest. His wife Susan publicly stated that she found this astounding and insulting. It was hoped that the garbage bags used to dispose of Karina's upper body would reveal a vital clue. Forensic experts tried to uncover where they'd been manufactured and whether they were for commercial or retail use. Unfortunately, the bags were made from a very common type of plastic and the search went nowhere. Detectives thought they had another breakthrough when the skeletal remains of two legs belonging to a white female aged between 20 and 40 were found in the rural foothills of Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains. But they turned out not to belong to Karina Holmer. In November 1996, WCVB TV reported that a week before Karina's murder, she and another or pair spent a night in the company of two police officers. It was rumoured that one of the officers, who worked paid detail at Zanzibar nightclub and briefly dated Karina, had been interviewed by detectives. However, investigators said they found no evidence tying him to the crime, and just like all the other persons of interest, he was ultimately ruled out. Then, new information sent detectives looking in another direction. The last known sightings of Karina had placed her in the alley outside Zanzibar nightclub at around 2.30am. Now, some additional witnesses suddenly came forward to say they had seen Karina outside a 24-hour convenience store between 3.30 and 4am. The store was close to the dumpster where Karina's torso was subsequently found. Detectives wondered if this sighting indicated that Karina had been planning to head out again. Maybe she was on her way to an after-hours party. They just had no idea as to how or whether she got there or if she was alone. On January 9 1997, police were called to the home of Herb Witten, the man who had been walking his dog in a Superman t-shirt on the night of Karina's murder. They were met at Herb's door by a concerned relative who had called the police when she couldn't get a hold of him. Inside, they found Herb Witten deceased on the bathroom floor. An investigation determined that Herb had taken his own life. Those who knew him speculated that he ended his life due to his severe mental health issues, combined with the notoriety that had come from being associated with Karina Homer's murder. Although Herb was never mentioned by name in the media, he was so well known as the burly man who walked his large white dog in the middle of the night that locals knew exactly who the police were referring to. Rumours also circulated that Herb suicided because he had murdered Karina and could no longer live with the guilt. Following Herb's death, his lawyer explained that Herb had never been interviewed by the homicide detectives because his mental state would have made a police interrogation inappropriate. The lawyer told the Boston Globe, I can't comment on what he said, but I feel confident, based on my own investigation, that he had no connection whatsoever to the death of Karina Holmer. I think his death related to the pressure he felt in being considered a suspect in this slaying. He always felt scrutinised by police and the public, family and friends. He felt like he had a scarlet letter on his chest It was very tough. The first anniversary of Karina's murder arrived, and detectives were no closer to apprehending her killer, despite interviewing hundreds of witnesses and clocking up more than a thousand hours of investigative time. Now, they were leaning toward the theory that Karina was last seen at 3 am on Boston Common likely walking back to Frank Rapp's South Boston loft. Whilst those in Sweden celebrated 1997's Midsummer, Karina's family marked one year since her death by visiting her grave and decorating it with evergreen and wildflowers. Karina's father, Ulla, gave an interview with the journalist from the Associated Press and remarked on the strange use of the word anniversary, saying, You call it an anniversary. That's a very odd word for me. Anniversary for me is some kind of celebration. He explained that the period he most struggled with in dealing with the loss of his daughter was when the initial leads ran dry and the case development stopped. Ula still spoke occasionally to police, but they had little to report. Quote, They only give out what they think they need to give out. But I think I know that they have come up with zero. Absolutely zero. That's nothing at all. That should worry America a bit." Meanwhile, a photograph of Karina Holmer sat in the office shared by Detective Sergeant Thomas O'Leary and his three homicide squad partners. Detective Juan Torres, whose first homicide case was that of Karina's, said to the Boston Globe, It serves as a reminder of a task unfinished. In February 1999, Susan Nicta presented an exhibition of her paintings at a Boston gallery. As reported in the Boston Globe, some of the pieces explored her experience during Karina Homer's murder, with two paintings depicting a woman wrestling with a well-meaning angel of death. Over the years, a few more persons of interest came up in police investigations, but all were quickly dismissed as suspects. As of 2021, the murder of Karina Homer remains unsolved. The crime scene where she was killed has not been identified and the lower half of her body was never recovered. Nor have investigators figured out what might have caused her to write home and tell a friend, quote, something terrible has happened. Soon after Karina's death, a friend of hers in Sweden, Jenny, was interviewed by the Aftonbladet newspaper. In her hands, Jenny clasped her dict book, a book that teenage girls in Sweden circulate amongst friends to share messages and thoughts. As reported by the Associated Press, Jenny turned to a page written by Karina. It had been decorated with drawings of wildflowers, and Karina had written the following message. I sit and look out to sea. The soft sand is red coloured and my cheek is damp because my heart is bleeding and my eyes are crying. When I open my eyes, I see a bird sitting with me on the ground. He looks at me and begins to sing a song. My dear child, life has returned to you and you will again feel happy. Your soul is clean and the life spirit is glowing in your eyes. The finest gift you ever get is life. You should not throw it away or trample on it, but you should hold it high in your hands.